Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's your headline. Nothing to see here. President Trump has weighed in on the three briefs filed by federal prosecutors late Friday, implicating Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, and the president himself in criminal activity. That's right, criminal activity. Now, despite the foreboding implications of these briefs, and I'll get to those in a minute, Trump is hailing the revelations as a victory. On the Mueller situation, we're very happy with what we are reading because... Uh, There was no collusion whatsoever. Uh, There never has been. The last thing I want is help from Russia on a campaign. Uh, You should ask Hillary Clinton about Russia because she financed the fake dossier, which I understand they tried to get some information and help from Russia. All right, here for the latest on the president's reaction to these stunning legal filings is CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray. Well, Essie, it's kind of hard to envision why the president feels so positive after seeing these filings. I mean, we know, for instance, from the Michael Cohen filing that this is the first time that prosecutors are directly implicating President Trump in federal crimes, which was, of course, Michael Cohen uh, doing making these hush money payments at the direction of then-candidate Trump. The other thing we learned from Michael Cohen, from his cooperation with the Southern District of New York, as well as special counsel Robert Mueller's team, is that, of course, the Moscow Trump Tower project went on much longer than he was previously. Uh, willing to divulge to congressional investigators that he kept Donald Trump in the loop about that project, including about his conversations with the Russian government regarding that project. And this is just kind of scratching the surface, because when you dig into the, the filings surrounding Paul Manafort, you discover that one of the things Paul Manafort lied about was his interactions with a man named Konstantin Kalimnik, who is a Russian national who prosecutors believe has ties to Russian military intelligence. So you're left with, first of all, President Trump being implicated by prosecutors for the first time in a campaign finance violation. And secondly, with yet another signal that there were so many members of Trump's orbit, whether it was his campaign or his inner circle, who were somehow in touch with Russian nationals. Obviously, this is a far cry from what we heard from candidate Trump or even President Trump, who insisted he had no business deals with Russia, no possible business deals with Russia, and that no one on his campaign was in touch with any Russians. Obviously, none of that entirely accurate, Essie. Mm, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And now tonight's other headline. Um, there's plenty to see here. Friday night's court filings suggest that the Mueller investigation is nearing its end game and that the president himself is now in pretty serious legal jeopardy. The trio of briefs, two from the special counsel's office and one from federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, document the many lies of former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort and Trump's longtime personal attorney and fixer Michael Cohen. The filings allege that both men sought to conceal the extent of contact that they had with Russian nationals during the 2016 campaign. And in the case of Cohen's lies to Congress regarding Trump Tower Moscow, that some of those lies were carried out with the knowledge 
and approval of people within the Trump administration. In addition, the filings indicate that Cohen then repeated those same lies publicly, perhaps indicating an effort to have everyone get on the same page. The defendant amplified his false statements by releasing and repeating his lies to the public, including to other potential witnesses. Now, I'm no lawyer, but that seems fairly obstruction-y to me. Uh, the briefs also allege that over the course of 12 meetings, Paul Manafort lied about his contacts with the Trump administration before he pleaded guilty to a number of crimes back in September, long after he left the Trump circle. He also lied about contact with an individual believed to be a Russian intelligence agent. The frequency of that contact and the subject of that contact are redacted, but the filings seem to suggest Mueller has substantial evidence to back up his accusations. But the most notable revelation, at least as far as the White House should be concerned, has to do with Cohen's payments to Trump's mistresses, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. According to prosecutors, Cohen's efforts were a direct violation of campaign finance laws and were undertaken at the direction of Donald Trump. So this is the first time that prosecutors have directly implicated the president of the United States in a crime. Two of them, in fact. Here's the deal. Earlier today, the president tweeted, after two years and millions of pages of documents and a cost of over 30 million, no collusion. He also told reporters, we're very happy with what we're reading in the Mueller briefs. Two things. Yes, this investigation could definitely still find evidence of collusion with Russians. It could already be in these very findings. They're heavily redacted. And chirping giddily about no collusion is a little like Al Capone bragging, but see, they couldn't get me for murder when he's just been convicted of tax fraud. He still went to prison for a very long time. But secondly, we're very happy with what we're reading. Are we reading what I'm reading in particular? The words that accuse you of crimes? Look, Trump is only kidding himself when you're the president of the United States and you've just been implicated in criminal activity. Things are not okay in your world. But hey, hope you enjoyed the Army-Navy game today. All right, here to discuss this further, let me bring in CNN legal analyst Paul Callen and former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti. Uh, Renato, I want to go to you first. So the president wants us to believe this is all fine, no big deal, no collusion. I'm not a lawyer. You tell me, is he right? Uh, I could not, with a straight face, tell one of my clients that he had nothing to worry about if federal prosecutors told a judge that he directed someone to commit a federal crime. Mm. Uh, mm. I, there, you don't have to be a lawyer to know that that's a very, very big problem for you. So there's an active investigation. They've come to this conclusion. And just to be clear, it's not just based on the say-so of Michael Cohen. They have other evidence as well. And they cited in that brief to the uh, U.S. probation uh, department, which found the same thing, made the same conclusion. So that's got to be concerning. If Donald Trump was my client, I would tell him, uh, you know, you have very, very serious criminal liability and you are in serious jeopardy. Uh, and anyone who says otherwise is really either lying or, or trying to deceive somebody. Just well, that Paul, what do you think his attorneys are telling him? I mean, Renato brings up a great point. He has advisors, right? I mean, he's presumably surrounded by some smart people telling him or who should be telling him this is a big deal. What do you think? What do you think they're saying to him? Well, you know, I really don't know, because if Rudolph Giuliani is giving uh -huh. the advice, he's all over the map mm. uh, in terms of the things that he says. 
anybody who's been named as individual number one in a federal indictment. Ooh, an chills. Indictment, I just got chills. That's right. Yeah, you don't want that. You're reading the indictment. You find out you've been specified as uh, individual number one. Ooh, no. And the guy who's being indicted is your lawyer. I think that's something that gives you double chills. Um, yeah. He's been linked directly now to a campaign finance violation, which is a felony, which his own personal lawyer has pled guilty mm. to. So I think he's got a lot to worry about. And as Renato said, there's so much uh, uh, that's been redacted that right. we don't know about. Uh, and we know that uh, Mueller is very, very thorough in this investigation. Well, so, Paul, sticking with you, people are split on whether you can actually indict a sitting president. It's not in the Constitution, for example, but it is sort of a DOJ guidance. Um, what, what happens next with these criminal implications? Well, I think we'd have to ask the Democrats in Congress when they take mm -hmm. over in January. Mm -hmm. uh, he can be impeached even if he can't be charged criminally sure. while right. he sits as president, and that has happened. Uh, in the past. So political consequences That's right. for now. Uh, Renato, we're all trying to read between the lines of, of these findings here. Do you get the sense that Mueller is going down a road that ties Trump business dealings to Russian election interference? interference? Is that where he's sort of targeting? Well, it certainly appears that way, S.E. If you look at the, the filing that Mueller made, they talk about the synergy, right? There's this political synergy mm. uh, between the, the, the Trump campaign and the Russian government that, uh, that Cohen was having conversations about. Uh, there's a discussion of, you know, multiple Russians who are trying to uh, make contact with Cohen and offer help from the Russian government. He turned one down because he already had a, a different Russian who was helping him. And, you know, Mueller was very clear that uh, Cohen had provided him with a lot of information that he did not specify. Mm -hmm. uh, he did not go into detail about. Uh, look, t taken together, those either one of those documents, I think in another era, in the 70s or 80s, might have potentially brought down a presidency. Uh, taken together, they're very devastating. And I think uh, anybody, uh, w no matter what your political stripe, has to take, I think, both of those pieces of news pretty seriously. I, I don't think you even have to go back decades. I think a couple of years ago that would have taken down a president. Republicans <laughs> would have made sure of that. Um, Paul, there's an argument that Cohen, Michael Cohen, in lying to the public, which is not illegal, was trying to help Trump obstruct justice. Yes. Is there a legal uh, underpinning to that? Oh, there most argument? definitely is. And through the years, uh, politicians who have been indicted on a variety of charges, that's frequently a claim that's made at mm. press conferences and so forth. They have made statements to throw the investigators off right. by making false statements. Mm -hmm. um, and circling back even to your Al Capone analogy, <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't know where, uh, uh, where Mueller is going with this investigation. But I know that when people like Al Capone were prosecuted in more recent days under racketeering mm. uh, statutes, mm -hmm. they make a claim that a business enterprise is a racketeering mm -hmm. enterprise. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Mueller's looking at the Trump huh. campaign as a racketeering enterprise. That theory can often be used to get the guy at the top mm -hmm. when you only have underlings uh, in custody or making statements. Wow, so it wouldn't surprise me down the road that's to see if that's a theory huh. that's been looked at by Mueller. Um, Renato, the SDNY filing, interestingly, makes it known that Michael Cohen's cooperation, in their opinion, was overstated by Michael Cohen. Uh, now, he will be sentenced on Wednesday. What, are, what should we expect from that? What I would expect uh, is, a, a, is a prison sentence, but a sentence 
that's significantly below the guideline range. So somewhere maybe in the range of, you know, one to four years, something in that range. Uh, you know, significant prison sentence, certainly uh, going to be a change of life for Michael Cohen. But, you know, yeah. it's not like he's going away for the rest of his life or anything like that. So, Renato, what do we still not know? There's a lot, right? I mean, this, this, this could <laughs> still go in, in a lot of directions. But crucially for you, what do you think we still don't know uh, despite the release of these, tr this trio of, of briefings? On the New York side, what we don't know is how far up the Trump organization that investigation is going. We know Alan Weisselberg and others have been cooperating with right. the uh, Southern District of New York investigation. There could be others, including Trump's family members, who are uh, implicated in that. One of them appears to be an unnamed individual uh, who is also mentioned in the indictment. And then on the, tr on the Mueller side, um, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, I yeah. think the, the big question is, you know, next, what happens to Roger Stone? And then beyond that, you know, were there others that are that are in, involved in a conspiracy relating to yeah. those emails and other help from the Russians? Uh, everything's fine. Don't worry. Everything's fine. <laughs> this is all great. Uh, Paul Renato, thanks for coming on and breaking that all down. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, next I'll speak to a Democratic congressman about all this White House turmoil and what it means for House Democrats. And a bit later, a look at who's busy working behind the scenes to mount a challenge to Trump in 2020. In less than a month, January 3rd, to be exact, Democrats will take over leadership of the House and all the power that comes with it. That includes subpoena power. Now, that alone should have the president reaching for the Pepto-Bismol. Then add the fact that the Mueller investigation is closing in on Trump, thanks to former loyalists turned snitches like Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn. And add to that, after a midterm throttling by Democrats, Trump is looking to put some new blood in his administration, announcing yesterday the nominations of State Department spokeswoman Heather Nauert as U.N. ambassador and William Barr to attorney general. And this afternoon that his chief of staff, John Kelly, will be leaving the White House at the end of the year. Next few weeks are going to be interesting. Trump is presumably hoping Barr will be a more willing ally at the DOJ when it comes to the Mueller investigation. But can anyone save him from what's coming? For more on this, let me bring in Democratic member of the House Intelligence Committee, Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes. OK, let's start with the Mueller findings because uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about it. Nothing to see here or a big problem for the president. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's a huge problem for the president, and it's not just the Mueller findings, of course. I mean, the, uh, the Cohen sentencing memo uh, provided something that we have not seen in this long ordeal, which was the direct implication of the president in a crime. And, of course, the Mueller investigation goes to uh, this individual Kalimnik that Manafort was talking to, a Russian who seems to have uh, connections to the intelligence community in Russia. Yeah. Yet another uh, undisclosed and lied-about link to the Russians. So that's a big deal. What do you think Democrats are going to do come January 3rd? Well, that's a good question, because we don't know what else Mueller has coming. And yeah. again, um, you know, there has been, as you know, a really aggressive back and forth in the Democratic Party about the I-word, impeachment. Right. And the leadership has said, and I think they've been right in this, which is you do not talk about impeachment until there are really clear grounds to do it. And now we're getting a taste of the possibility. I mean, aren't you there getting there? These are, these are crimes. Well, uh, certainly uh, that, that's the implication of the Cohen memo. As he, here's, yeah. the, here's the issue. Yeah. You know, we were handed the majority. Uh, if 
we go that route. That is the most consequential thing that Congress can do next to declaring war. If yes. we do that, and remember, the Senate is a long way from convicting and impeach Donald Trump, right. a long way right. from that. Uh, the other thing it does is, and I'm very conscious of this, I think part of the reason the Democrats were handed the majority of the House of Representatives was that families all over this country said, hey, I'm worried about wages, I'm worried about health care, right. I'm worried about my retirement, about educating my kids. Democrats, please make some progress. And of course, if we go to the big eye, to the possibility of impeachment, yeah. that progress is stalled or stopped. And that's a serious consideration. Well, and the country hates that process. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it's been disruptive. In fact, you know, it's actually good for Clinton. It made his approval numbers go up um, when, when it happened uh, then. But uh, it would certainly be destabilizing. Uh, on this subject, David Axelrod interviewed Rahm Emanuel, um, Chicago mayor, earlier this week. And that's coming up after our show. So people should stay tuned. Um, but Rahm said the Democrats should leave Trump to Mueller and that instead they should first focus on the possible ethics violations in other departments like um, uh, EPA, Interior. I mean, take your pick. I assume, like you just said, you think Democrats' first priority should be legislating. But do you agree with Rom also that the focus should be on probing these other areas of ethics violations and sort of leaving Trump to Mueller? Oh, no question. No question. I mean, again, um, you know, there's two things that we must do. One is actually make some progress for the American people. Right. Uh, yeah, that's why I think they gave us the majority in places we never expected to get votes, like Oklahoma, yeah. like Kansas, like South Carolina. Yeah. The other thing, of course, we <laughs> need to do, and you know, you shouldn't be a Democrat to believe this. You should be an American. The Constitution sets up the Congress to be a check and a balance on the president. Yes. It has not been that in the last two years. Uh, I see this on the Intelligence Committee. Devin Nunes, at some point, the chairman of that committee, decided that he would become the, you know, the nation's, the Congress's chief advocate for Donald Trump. That is not the role of the Congress. So we've got a lot of work to do, yeah, as you say, yeah. uh, on the agencies where there is, you know, you remember Scott Pruitt. You remember the, I do. Uh, you know, any number of individuals mm -hmm. uh, who are no longer serving at places like HHS because of ethical questions. We're talking yeah. about American taxpayer money. The Congress has a role to play in making sure that it's being used wisely. Yeah, you point out Republicans in particular have not been doing that job being a check on the executive. Do you think that starts to change with some of the early findings of both Mueller and the SDNY uh, briefings? Does, do, do, does that sort of lead some Republicans to say, well, wait a second, wait a second. It might be time to bail on this. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question, Essie. Um, you know, the Republicans who come from districts where Donald Trump is unpopular, most of them lost a month ago. Yeah. So now this country is so polarized, now most of the Republicans who are still in the Congress of yeah. the United States come from places where the president is still pretty popular. Yeah. What changes that? My guess is that it's stuff like tariffs, hammering farmers. Right. So now all of a sudden in rural areas, Trump's not popular. Yeah. Or maybe it's the fact that he promised to bring back the coal mines, and of course the coal mines, you know, were burning less coal than we ever have. I think it's those people in very red areas saying, mm -hmm. wait a second, we got sold a bill of goods. And it's mm -hmm. hard to know how fast that happens. What do you, uh, switching gears, a lot of news today. Um, what do you think of Bill Barr's uh, announcement uh, to nomination to AG. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, it's funny. He, he's, he's a little bit before my time. I yeah. think I might have been, uh, you know, just getting out of college when he was. And this is important. He was Attorney General. By the way, he was Attorney General. Let's right. celebrate the fact that he got confirmed <laughs> once and clearly has the stature Qualified. to occupy that uh, position. Considering who the acting Attorney General is, is uh, the bar is pretty low given the acting Attorney General. Okay. You know, um, here's the thing about the Justice Department, and of course, so important, so attacked by President Trump. Yeah. You know, Barr is going to have a problem because the president is only ever going to love somebody who yeah. is willing 
to break the rules, to go against protocol, to violate the long-held independence of the Department yeah. of Justice. If you're not the president's man in that role, and of course the attorney general is not the president's no. man, uh, you're, you're going to come under the kind of fire that Jeff Sessions came under. I wonder if that's why he was a little reluctant. Uh, according to reports, he was reluctant to take the job because he probably knows that. Probably and, knows it's going to be tough. And that was before the president opened up on Rex Tillerson and called him lazy and stupid. Yes. <laughs> you know, why would you take yes. this job? Why would anyone? Uh, Congressman Himes, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Esty. Okay, uh, coming up next, a look at the last-minute power grabs by some in the GOP before they leave office in January. And later I'll speak to a senator about the mounting pressure lawmakers are putting on Trump over his handling of Saudi Arabia. CBS has a Me Too problem, that much we know. The question now is how long has CBS had this problem? Well, according to a new investigation, a long time. This year, after network head Les Moonves was forced out over sexual misconduct allegations, and 60 Minutes executive producer Jeff Fager was fired after getting hit with his own accusations, the board of directors hired two law firms to investigate the scandals. According to the New York Times, they found that you can add 60 Minutes creator Don Hewitt to the list. The Times reports that in the 90s, CBS settled with an employee who accused Hewitt of sexually assaulting her on repeated occasions and, quote, destroying her career. That settlement has been amended multiple times, including this year, for a payout reportedly totaling $5 million. In other words, CBS was aware of this kind of behavior three decades ago. We'll be back in two minutes. In the red file tonight, in the wake of the defeat in the midterm, elec uh, midterm elections, Republican legislatures in Wisconsin and Michigan are working to kneecap incoming Democratic administrations. In Wisconsin, Republican lawmakers have already passed bills that would limit the ability of the state's newly elected Democratic governor and attorney general to act on all sorts of issues, including gun control and the Affordable Care Act. Republican lawmakers in Michigan are preparing to introduce similar legislation that would also limit the power of incoming Democrats. So are Republicans just sore losers, or is it worse than that? For more on this, let me bring in CNN senior political commentator, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm. So... I don't need to tell you this, Jen. Republicans in Wisconsin lost every statewide election. While the governor's race was um, very close, I think 1.2 percent, Wisconsin voters, I think, sent Republicans a very clear message. And clearly Republicans didn't receive that message. Instead, they're, in my opinion, trying to subvert the will of the people. Yeah. Will, that, will that backfire? Yeah, I mean, this is really a way for the Republicans in the legislature to overthrow the will of the people. It is a vote yeah. heist, and it's true in Michigan as well. And, right. you know, in Michigan and in Wisconsin, voter turnout in this election where, where people were sending a message to the legislature and to the executive branch that they wanted a change was at record turnouts. It was a record turnout mm. for the past 50 years in Michigan. It was a record turnout of all time in a midterm in Wisconsin. So, yeah. so yeah, I think there's going to be a significant backlash on the part of citizens who are ticked off that their representatives, Republicans and Democrats, by the way, are not listening. So uh, you mentioned Michigan and some some critics are suggesting in Michigan that Republican lawmakers may be actually violating the state constitution. Obviously, you were 
the governor of that state. Do you think the Republicans' move will actually collapse under legal scrutiny? Yeah, I think under, in both states there there's significant legal challenges. I was the attorney general as well of Michigan, and this kind of stuff um, would clearly end up in court in Michigan. Mm. Just as one example, Essie, I mean, the voters approved by 67 percent a an amendment which allows for citizens to have greater access to the ballot box, same-day voter registration, that kind of thing. And the legislature is coming behind adding onerous voter ID requirements, which is exactly mm. the opposite of what the citizens said they wanted. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that, to me, that is mm. um, that is something that is going to end up in court, as well as a number. There's a whole series of separation of challenge arguments in both states that mm. are going to end up in court. I just think the legislature has to get it, and they clearly don't. Citizens don't want this. In Michigan, just another quick example, 400,000 yeah. citizens signed a petition to raise the minimum wage. 400,000. The legislature is going behind them trying to undo that. That is yeah. a complete violation of what citizens have demanded. And you better believe that those same people are going to organize and put it back on the ballot. So there's your backlash. You're going to yeah. see legislative backlash for, I mean, uh, citizen backlash against yeah. these legislative moves. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't like some of the policies that, you know, that voters right. that voters push through. But that, it's not up to me. It's up to them. It's um, the, I the, mean, just it's to their, play just to play get, devil's advocate for a second, yeah, though. Yeah. What, what would you say to someone who said this is within their legislative authority? They were elected to. And so they have the right to sort of protect their legacy policies. Well, I would say, first of all, it's fine to do stuff that is within your purview, but if you are doing things that clearly are violations of the state constitutions, then that is a problem. And also, if you're like Tony Evers, he campaigned on pulling out of the lawsuit that challenges the Affordable Care Act. He wants to be able to have citizens have access to health care. Now, can they you know, circumscribe his ability to do that? That would be taking away gubernatorial power by yeah. a legislature legislative branch. That is a separation of powers question that will be answered in a mm. court. So you, whether you like or don't like what they campaigned on, yeah. citizens get the last word and they voted. And this is not supposed to be a legislative coup, which is what the legislatures right. in both states are attempting to do. And can I just say one other quick thing, um, yeah. Essie, is you're seeing th this happened in North Carolina a couple of That's years right. ago, right? Yeah. With Roy Cooper. And they circumscribed his ability to make appointments and all of that. That went to court. You're seeing another, you know, you can. It's you a can pattern. It's a pattern, but you know what? You can suppress the vote on the front side by saying, oh, we're going to uh, deny people access to the ballot bo box in North Carolina. You can steal their votes literally, like what they're doing in North Carolina, the 9th Congressional District, mm -hmm, by, mm -hmm. yeah. by taking away, Absentee engaging ballots, yeah. in voter fraud. Or you can steal the vote after the fact, ex post facto. And that's well, it, what's happening in Michigan and, and in Wisconsin. And that's almost worse because the voters well, have spoken. And it's no wonder why people don't trust the process, don't Hello. trust Congress, don't trust their lawmakers. This is why. And it's a it's a huge perversion of democracy. It, it um, is thanks, a huge Jen. perversion. You bet. Yeah, I appreciate Great. it. Governor Granholm, yeah. thank you. Uh, Democrats are off to the races, but is anyone actually pulling ahead? <laughs> we'll see. Believe it or not, we are off to the 2020 races, and a number of Democratic contenders are making some news. 
Just this week, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick announced he will not be running due to the, quote, cruel nature of our electoral process. I feel you. Uh, also not running, get your Kleenex out, Michael Avenatti. So sad. But Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, who by all accounts is planning to run, got an unexpected rebuke from her hometown paper, the Boston Globe, telling her to back out. The Thursday editorial read, while Warren is an effective and impactful senator with an important voice nationally, she has become a divisive figure. A unifying voice is what the country needs now after the polarizing politics of Donald Trump. Yikes. Uh, also earlier this week, we learned that Texas heartthrob Beto O'Rourke met with Barack Obama in November. Wonder what they talked about. And today we learned from The Washington Post, one of the architects of Elizabeth Warren's rise to national prominence is planning to meet with him soon as well. Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg was in Iowa on Tuesday and Vice President Joe Biden was in Montana on Monday where he told the audience he was the most qualified person in the country to be president. What do all these moves mean? There's so much. Uh, joining me now is former Republican Congressman, CNN political commentator Charlie Dent and the former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, Democratic strateg strategist Basil Smigel. I could talk about this all day. <laughs> it is the Super Bowl for us. I just I just love the, the horse race conversations. So Basil, to you, what do you make of this stunning editorial in the Boston Globe? It was it was stunning. But you know what? I, 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 I understand it. You know, when this happened, when Elizabeth Oh, I don't Warren, disagree with them. I'm just shocked I, it happened. No, no I'm, I'm not so shocked. You know, there was such widespread rebuke about for what she did. And to the be, DNA test. The DNA test. It actually, to me, smacked of privilege, quite frankly, oh. to, to, to be able to claim something that you're tangentially attached oh, to. Oh, it was so bad then, for all the and reasons. And have got benefited from it in, in the use of it in some way, shape, or form. That actually bothered me a lot. Do you think Bothered yeah. a lot of folks. And, I, and I, yes. so I agree with it. Yeah. No, the Boston Globe essentially told Elizabeth Warren to take all the seats. Uh, Charlie Dent, do you, do you think that she's done? Do you think her, her presidential career uh, aspirations are over? Well, that decision is up to her. Look, I, I think it would be a gift to Republicans if she did run oh. uh, because she is so divisive. You. And there are going to be a lot of Republicans out there, a lot of Americans who want someone other than Donald Trump. Yeah. But they'll say, but but I can't do that. No, you know, no, but I can't no do that. that is so, what they will so say. So I think that's a problem for her. She's, she is just too divisive, you know, hard left. And I think that would actually, actually, if she if she became the Democratic nominee, yeah. I suspect there would be a serious third party movement. Uh -huh. that would, then that would actually help Donald Trump because it could then split the anti-Trump vote. Just, yeah, just well, and also the you know Donald Trump benefited in 2016 from having this huge cast mm -hmm. of people running. He could distinguish himself by not being like all of them. Do you think Democrats running will also need to find ways within the party to distinguish themselves? You know, to to be quote unquote the Donald Trump, the person who emerges out of it. I think, and we've talked about this. I think it's important for the party's process to play itself out. We yeah. shouldn't be in the we shouldn't be in the business of picking, choosing one. Number uh -huh, one, uh -huh, uh -huh. and number two, I also don't want the spectacle of like the happy hour debate. Uh, because there are 20 people oh, in the race. Uh, I don't want that either. Spoiler alert, you're getting it. <laughs> I don't want that either. Uh, but I Because I do think there are a handful of folks, when I say handful, I mean seven or eight, uh, that are actually uh, pushing to the for forefront. And by the time we get to March, I think you'll see half of those folks uh, take a step aside. Um, Charlie, you've met with the president. Uh, you, you, we all watched him campaign. We've seen him swipe at his opponents. Yeah. It's very effective. What Democrat can survive those withering blows? That's going to be an important part of this. I'm not sure which one survives the blows, but my, my sense is the Democrats 
want to fall in love. I, you know, we have all these lanes. You know, you have the mm. governor lane, the septuagenarian lane, uh, the women lane, the African-American lane. Yeah. But I think what they I think this is not about race. I don't think it's I, I don't think it's about gender. Or I, think it's about yeah. the, I think it's about the next generation. Who is the Is it going to be a Kamala Harris? She checks a lot of boxes, a Cory Booker, a Beto O'Rourke. I think that's where many Democrats want to go uh -huh. in that lane. Uh -huh. uh, but I don't know which one has the best personality to confront Donald Trump. I think sometimes well, yeah. boring is good. Well, you know what's interesting? And I, and I, and I agree with you in. in in, in this sense, uh, presidential campaigns are about creating social and political movements. Mm -hmm. Great campaigns have been able to do that. Certainly Barack Obama did. Even yes. Bill Clinton in 92. Yes. So I do think you will see um, that kind of movement emerge. The question is, does it look more like the, the sort of Joe Biden parts of right. the party? Right. But, or does it really represent this new generation that is younger, that's more diverse? Well, that's, I think that's a really important point because in, in 2016, one of the criticisms of, of Hillary Clinton was that um, she was a corporation, Bernie was a cause. Mm. And I don't know if he can recapture that again. That magic yep. was probably, well, you know. It was about change, too. Yeah, right. I mean, let's face it, it. Hillary was running yeah. for Barack Obama's third term. American, the American people so desperately wanted to change that they were willing to take a great risk on Donald Trump. Yes. I mean, I think that's what this is about. And same with the, well, in this coming election, uh, it's certainly going to be about a change. Yes. People are, you know, they're tired, they're exhausted of Donald Trump. And mm -hmm. so who's who's the best vicar? Who's the best messenger? Mm -hmm. And who can, you know, withstand the, the, the jabs and all the, the shots are going to be taken every day? Well, and so Deval Patrick's uh, message that, like, this process is too cruel, yeah. I get. In fact, why would any Democratic rising star from Beto to Corey to Kamala... Why would they do this now? Because it's going to be brutal. Well, this is what's interesting. I had, there was a time, maybe a year or so ago, when I felt anyone could beat Donald Trump. But now I hear from just voters, not political people at all, mm -hmm. that feel that Donald Trump may actually get elected. But I still think, yeah. but I still think there are a lot of really great Democrats that can do that social political movement mm. to take him out. Uh, we will see. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. Like I said, I could do this all day, all night. Basil, Charlie. Thanks. Next, I'll speak to a senator about the growing chorus of lawmakers confronting Trump over his handling of Saudi Arabia. A new report today from The New York Times suggests that senior presidential advisor and Trump son-in-law Jared Kushner has used his cozy relationship with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to help him, quote, weather the storm that has followed the murder of a Washington Post columnist. But that may not be enough to keep congressional lawmakers from calling out President Trump's response to the brutal and state-sponsored killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Not just Democrats either, Republicans too. Trump and senior administration officials have refused to hold the Saudi crown prince directly responsible for the murder, despite the CIA's conclusions that he personally ordered the assassination. And something we haven't seen too often the GOP-led Senate is preparing to confront the White House with floor votes likely this week on the U.S.'s involvement in the Saudi-led war in Yemen, which has been, by all accounts, disastrous. This was South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. If you get in the orbit of the United States, if you want to buy our weapons and integrate your economy into ours, there's a certain price to be paid. Don't chop somebody up in a consulate. That's not too much to ask. Hmm. All this is complicated by reports of Saudi business ties leading back to Trump, prompting some to wonder if U.S. foreign policy is essentially up for sale to the highest bidder. And at what cost? A human life? Perhaps even thousands? 
Joining me now is Democratic Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. Um, Senator, let's first discuss the, the Yemen resolution or the Lee Sanders resolution, as it's being called, for uh, co-sponsors Mike Lee and Bernie Sanders. Um, one problem I see with it off the bat is it will need to pass the House and then the president will have to sign it. That seems unlikely. Two, uh, tell me how this resolution is more than just symbolic. Well, first of all, it's very sim it's very important message and a very important action. If the United States Senate, a majority of the members of the United States Senate, tell this administration that we do not support America's participation with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Yemen. Uh, that means the president does not have the support of the United States Senate in regards to those actions. It's, it's, it's a message about our, the campaign in Yemen, uh, mm -hmm. that our involvement is, is not adding to a solution as part of the tragedy of that, of that region, and that we need to reevaluate it. So is this symbolic message to the president, or is it to Saudi Arabia? I don't think it's a symbolic message. I think it's a clear indication that the support is not in the Senate to continue this campaign. It's clearly aimed at the Saudis to understand that we will not participate in the way they are conducting right. this campaign. But it's also to the President of the United States to say it's time to reevaluate America's role. And I want to get to that in a second. Um, but as you know, the, the Yemen resolution is basically directing the president to remove U.S. armed forces from hostilities in or affecting the Republic of Yemen. Um, as Senator Bob Corker, your colleague, said, though, what's, what's this actually changing on the ground where we're already not refueling jets, for example? Well, that is, there's been a suspension of U.S. fueling. That could, re, they could, that could start up again at any time without uh, congressional action. There's also other ways in which the United States is participating with the Saudis in regards to Yemen, including advising. So there, there's been a role of the United States here, and clearly right. uh, the, the, the tragedy in Yemen has to change. So would you support a resolution that calls to an end to U.S. intelligence gathering and intelligence assistance, uh, an end to our arms deals to Saudi Arabia with regard to Yemen uh, explicitly? I think that those, those two issues need to be considered. I am not for ending our relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but yeah. there has to be accountability uh, for the Crown Prince's actions. America's strength is in our values, and the action of the Crown Prince, there needs to be accountability. Right. So, and I, 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 th I agree, and I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle agree that we need a relationship with Saudi Arabia, that they're too important a partner in that region, especially when it comes to dealing with Iran. How does, what does that look like, maintaining a relationship but holding them accountable, ideally for you? Well, I understand that uh, Saudi Arabia needs the United States. Uh, their, their economy is changing. They know that the American economy is one that they want to be, to be part of. Uh, our military is the best in the world, most reliable in the world. They want the relationship with us. So it's in their interest. This isn't one-sided transaction. There's mutual benefit. But our strength are in the values. And the Saudis need to understand that they can't have a close relationship with our country unless they hold accountable of those individuals who are responsible for this brutal murder. Mm. Senator Cardin, thanks so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you.
That's it for us tonight. Next, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel joins David Axelrod for The X-Files. Don't miss it. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.